Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you in part by our incredible Patreon members. For as little as $1 a month, you can get solo episodes and join a monthly Patreon Zoom gathering that's happening as long as we're all indoors. The next one is April 19th, this coming Sunday, as of the release date. You can check it out at patreon.com slash secret library. This episode is also sponsored by Book of the Month. One thing I really love is getting a book in the mail. And Book of the Month is a curated book subscription service that offers five early release books each month, vetted from hundreds available. Members get to choose up to three and find it's a great excuse to try new genres as well as old favorites. Book of the Month loves debut and up-and-coming authors striving to include writers of diverse backgrounds. One of their April picks I was excited to see was the new book by Lucy Foley, The Guest List. I read her first book on a plane in one sitting, so I'd be sure to snatch this new one up. You can check out the rest of their April picks at bookofthemonth.com, where you can also get your first book for $9.99 with the code SECRETLIBRARY. That's bookofthemonth.com and the code SECRETLIBRARY. Okay, let's get on with the show. This week, my guest is Sue Monk Kidd. Her debut novel, The Secret Life of Bees, spent more than 100 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It sold more than 6 million copies in the United States and was turned into both an award-winning major motion picture and a musical, and has been translated into 36 languages. Her second novel, The Mermaid Chair, was a number one New York Times bestseller and was adapted into a television movie. Her third novel, The Invention of Wings, an Oprah's Book Club 2.0 pick, was also a number one New York Times bestseller. She is the author of several acclaimed memoirs, including The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, her groundbreaking work on religion and feminism, as well as the New York Times bestseller Traveling with Pomegranates, written with her daughter, Anne Kidd Taylor. She lives in North Carolina, and her new novel, The Book of Longings, is out now. I was so thrilled to be able to speak to Sumon Kidd because in her new novel, she has taken on one of the biggest challenges I could imagine writing as a fiction author. To write a story from the point of view of the wife of Jesus, I cannot think of a more intimidating proposition because we don't know if this woman existed. And yet reading this book, she felt as real to me as any of the other characters that I've encountered in fiction and haven't wanted to let go of at the end of the book. It was really an honor to speak to Sue about her process writing both this and her previous novels and to learn how she approaches revision, how she knows when she's got it right, and many other things that go into the forming of really, really compelling fiction, including character. I know you're going to love listening to Sue, so let's get on with this episode.
Hi, Sue. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you. It was really fascinating and such an enjoyable read to dive into the Book of Longings. And as we are thinking about the writing process, in particular revision lately on the show, I was really interested in the process of creating the character Anna. Do you pronounce it Anna or Anna? I wondered. I call her Anna. Okay. Um, Because I was like, wow, you could say this name, you know, when you read books and you think I'm saying this name one way in my head, but when I hear the author speak, they say it a different way. Um, I was really interested because in the afterword you wrote, which was really interesting to read, uh, you said that once you realized after having this idea a while back and then having it returned to you, that she showed up really quickly when you started thinking about her. So I'm wondering if you could say more about how Anna appeared and maybe how she changed over the process of writing the book. Well, I love that she did appear. She um, is probably the character I have um, the most passion about writing that that I've ever written, actually. Anna showed up about 15 years ago in a very fleeting way in my mind. She kind of um, really sort of danced through my thoughts, and I paused, and I thought, well, that would make a fascinating um, premise for a novel, that Jesus had a wife, and what would her story be? Um, Of course, at that time, she didn't have a name, and I, I didn't really dwell on it that much at the time. I... I kind of played with the idea for just a short while and then dismissed it. And why did I do that? I guess, I mean, I've thought about that a little. I think because at the time, um, I really wasn't ready to write this novel. I was busy doing other projects, and I think maybe I wasn't ready to write the novel at that point. And it could actually be that I didn't have all the wits and courage to write it at that time. But it didn't gain traction for me. And so um, I've said before, I think sometimes ideas um, go to some waiting room in our inside of us and wait their turn. <laughs> and this is what this one did, uh, but it waited a very long time. And it just resurfaced very abruptly one day. And this time... I mean, this was in uh, 2014 when it returned, and this time it was um, quite intense for me. I knew immediately almost that I would write this novel, that I wanted to do it, that I needed to do it, and... um, and I never really looked back. I mean, I had moments where I thought, what am I thinking here? <laughs> and because it is an audacious kind of approach. But um, essentially, um, from that moment on, you know, I was really committed to bringing this character to life for all kinds of reasons. Um, as far as developing her, um, I think my main question when I start a novel is what, well, two questions really. And when I can answer these two questions, I pretty much am ready to write the book. And in fact, I think the entire narrative kind of flows out of how I answer these questions, believe it or not. Cool. One question is, who is my character? 
And I want to know that um, as, as much as I possibly can. Who, who, is, who is she? And the second one is, what does she want? And of course, that second question goes to um, motivation and the unfolding of the plot itself. But the first question goes to the character and how I will develop her character. And if I can really work with those two questions um, for a while and they kind of um, become like little seeds that start sprouting inside of me, um, then I feel like the book is there. That It's like little seeds inside those questions, if that makes sense. It does. Um, I think um, developing Anna um, was important to do for one reason. I needed to tell a story of a woman who could actually be a partner to Jesus. Now, that meant she had to have her own magnitude, her own passion, her own kind of power. And I decided that the way I wanted to do that was to create a character who had a lot of um, rebelliousness, dissidence, uh, boldness, brilliance, and um, her own longings that drove her life. And so this went, in, this went into how I would unfold who she was. That's great. I have a question because I noticed that, you know, the idea of character motivation is always such a central one in getting ready to write a book and making it satisfying both to write and to read. And I... I sometimes wonder, because thinking about Anna, she's quite clear about wanting to write, and she's quite clear about also her love for this this man. And I'm wondering, do you find sometimes that answering the question, what does this character want, that in some ways they're not completely 100% conscious of what they want, and that you know something else as the writer about where they will ultimately evolve to than the character themselves know, if that makes sense. I mean, she's only 14 years old at the beginning of the book and, you know, we, we get to follow her through most of her life. So she changes and yet there are central things that are the same. Right. I think you're, uh, you have a very good point there. I think sometimes we aren't completely conscious or the character is not completely conscious of the fullness of what their motivation is about and it, and that it does evolve. But I do believe for me, I want to have enough of it there in the beginning so that the reader understands what is going on here. And they're not just left hanging about what this character wants and what they're about. At least um, a kind of launch pad for that. Um, you know, I want to make that that want of the character, that motivation, grow into something powerful. And it seems to me that the more um, important this want is to the character, the more powerful it becomes in the story and for the reader to become engaged with that character. I mean, I want the reader to just almost immediately... <laughs> identify with my character in an emotional way, in a felt way. Um, 
And the way I think um, is the fastest route to that is to give that character a desire that is so important to her, um, where the stakes are very high and where she has a lot of emotion around it. And then it, the stakes become high for the reader, too. So to me, that's how to engage the reader from the very beginning in my character's, the most intimate places in my character's heart and mind. Yes. I think this has been, I mean, this has been an important theme also throughout your fiction. You know, women who have a strong want often have maybe obstacles to having connection in the way that they would like to. Sometimes a difficult parent seems to be a theme. Someone who's holding them back doesn't understand them. Um, have you found that that your characters once have sort of circled around any themes or is it just something that feels completely tied to that character and you only see the parallels later? Well, I think the answer to that is probably both. <laughs> um, you know, because I one day my daughter said to me, um, Mom, do you realize you always have a bad parent in your <laughs> novels? And I thought, do I? Oh, yes, actually, I do. What is that about? I mean, my parents are are both alive and well at 98, and they don't deserve me to write about bad parents because they were incredibly <laughs> wonderful parents. But I do tend to do that. I do tend to um, write about... Um, that family dynamic where you have that push and pull between that's very strong between one of the parents, sometimes both of the parents. Um, (laughs) I don't know why novelists gravitate to certain themes over and over. It probably is some kind of unconscious thing that I'm doing, but I also tend to, you know, repeat other themes, uh, race, gender, um, that, need in a character to find her voice, her, her place of belonging in the world, her, some kind of empowerment and overcome things. It probably goes back to my own um, background in which I grew up in the South um, with in pre-feminist America. And I know what those limitations looked like and felt like. And so, you know, who knows what it is that shapes the wants. I just believe that we have to listen to that, to those inner authentic impulses, because that's where our, our, deepest, um, our deepest writing comes from. Definitely. I would also say there's a, there's a social justice element that, that runs through that I was picking up on. And I found it really interesting to, I think we always are presented with images of Jesus in particular, obviously in a religious context, and to think of him as someone very far removed from a human. Um, There's such a, you know, there's such a distance, but it was really satisfying to read him as a real character that I could picture and to think about him via Anna and how she related to him. How, How was it for you to write about you know, one of the most possibly I would find intimidating figures to write about as a character? Well, I think I went far, far out on the literary limb with this one. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what 
what kind of response I will completely get. Um, I noticed that early reviews are saying are always starting off by saying, well, who would have the guts to write about this? Or, yes, she actually is doing this, or <laughs> this is um, an audacious approach or something. Um, yeah, I was. I didn't do this lightly. I did realize that this was um, quite daring. But, you know, I just felt that it was my own longing to do this for reasons that maybe I can explain later. But I felt like... Um, I had to pursue him, Jesus, as a human being. That's what I was interested in, his humanity. And, of course, he's a major character. Now, I hasten to say, this really is Anna's story all the way through. It's told in first person because I figured if she was the most silenced woman in human history, if she if she really ever existed which I have no idea if Jesus had a wife or not, but if she did, if he did have a wife, she would be the most silenced woman in history. And therefore, if I'm going to write a fictional account of it, she needs to speak in her own voice and in first person. So that was the reason I did that. But Jesus is certainly an important character, and, um, and I decided to write what I call the pre-Easter Jesus which is the human Jesus, the one who um, is like us in some ways, who has the same um, kind of human instincts and so forth. So that was there was trepidation in that. Um, but actually writing is mostly, I decided, about courage anyway. Uh, I, I once had um, some quotes stenciled on the stair walls going up to my study, my writing study. And w- one of them was, writing is an act of courage. Mm. And it, it, it's by Cynthia Ozick, the brilliant writer. And I thought, I, I can't tell you how many times I have talked to uh, emerging writers, particularly, who... Um, don't really who who haven't scraped up the courage yet, and I've had to scrape mine up over and over again, and particularly to write this book, you know, I had to. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you this: hmm. the opening lines of this book are quite um, strong. Mm-hmm. I decided that I'm, I'm obsessed with beginnings, by the way, mm-hmm. and I will spend an inordinate amount of time on my beginning. I mean crazy amount of time getting it how I want it. And I decided that Anna um, had to just suddenly state who she was. She had to just appear in the reader's mind and say, this is who I am in a very bold and dramatic way. So she says, I am Anna, the wife of Jesus ben Joseph of Nazareth. I called him beloved, and he called me Little Thunder. Okay, that is the opening. When I wrote that, I actually took my hands off the keyboard, sat back in my chair, and it took my breath. I thought, wow, am I really doing this? (laughs) And, um, And I had to have a moment of gathering my audacity up. Um, and 
you know, I think writers have to do this over and over, not just because the premise is so unusual, but but just to tell our truth or just to have the um, to follow what's inside of us as we write. Um, I once wrote somewhere that once in our lives, we could say a writer, a woman, a person needs to take their own breath away. And sitting rocked back in that chair, my desk chair, I thought, okay, this is mine. This is it. So I always encourage writers to be um, to be bold in, in their attempt to not um, to not uh, sugarcoat or soft coat it, if you know what I mean. But I to, do. Um, to to go with it. Yes. So you said you take an inordinate amount of time with beginnings. So I am curious when. In the in the process of writing the book, did this rocked back in the chair moment happen? And and how much had been written up to that point? When were you really tackling the beginning? I'm assuming this wasn't the first time you sat down to write the book. Right. Um, now, I will say this first, and I'll try to answer your question. Okay. Um, I am not your uh, classic revisionist. I do it probably backward from how most people do it. I, I it. revise as I, I, <laughs> I revise as I go. Okay. And I, you know, I have read and I hear, I hear very uh, smart, brilliant writers say, you know, never do this, <laughs> but it's, it's the only thing I can do. And maybe it's why I, it, it takes me four years, but, um, but it's my way to do it. And I've done it with every book I've written. So I will work on the, the first chapter over and over until I have it to the place where I think it's ready. And then I know how to proceed to the next chapter. Mm. Um, so when I finish the book, I don't really have too much to do. I give it one good draft, one good, you know, rewrite or polishing or something before I send it in. But having said that, um, the beginning is the hardest part for me. It sets the tone, the motivation, the, the dynamic inside this character. I mean, there's so much that needs to go into a small space. And I want it I can never quite live up to it, mm. but I want it to be um, visual and vivid and so um, it's sort of impactful for the reader so that they won't forget that. And usually um, I try to do it well with The Secret Life of Bees. It was the bees coming out of the wall at night and flying about in the room and the sound of it. Um, that rather visual scene that is unusual. And I kind of want it to be not mundane. I want it to be the beginning to be different. Now, with the Book of Longings, I didn't know how it was going to start. I, oh, I worked on this and that. Nothing, I mean, you get a feeling inside, right? Mm -hmm. When you know, you know, this is okay. Yep, that's it. 
I hadn't gotten that feeling. And uh, I kept re- trying to come up with the right opening. And then one day I was researching a little bit online. You know how you go down a rabbit hole and you oh, yeah. find yourself somewhere like, how did I get here on the Internet? Well, yep. I found myself looking at these incredible incantation bowls. Oh. And they were they were from, um, you know, preceded the first century. And there was writing around the inside of the bowl in this spiraling fashion and sometimes a drawing in the bottom. And I thought, what are these? And all of a sudden it fell into place for me. Oh, this is the iconic image I'm looking for because this can hold Anna's longing. It becomes kind of the container that will move all the way through the story to hold her longings and to be a kind of um, tangible, visual, symbolic kind of thing that uh, about what she what she's about. And she writes her prayer in it. Um, and the last line of it is, when I am dust, seeing these words over my bones, she was a voice. And that's what she wants. She wants to be a voice in the world and to have her own, um, be able to write her narratives. So that incantation bowl helped me understand my beginning. And um, it took me, it, sometimes literally it can take me three months no. to write the opening, um, unfortunately. <laughs> but I will do it over and over until I feel like I have the kind of opening I really need. Wow. How do you stay kind of, I I think in these moments when I hear about, you know, I I rewrote probably portions of the book I'm working on now, you know, five, six times before getting to the end of the process, but I did them at different points. And I'm interested in how you stay hopeful that you're going to get there in the midst of this process. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the writer's life, right? Yes. Um, We write without guarantee. I mean, so to me, we have to love, love our characters, our story, and the actual process of writing. Um, I have heard, you know, writers say, I love having written but not writing. But that's, to me, sad. Because, of course, we love having written, but if we don't love the actual writing of it, um, well, that's a lot of our life that we don't love. (laughs) Um, So how do we stay in it when there's so many tensions that pull us in different ways? Um, I think the love of it, the absolute love of what you're doing, and the belief that it matters that um, even without the guarantee that it will, you know, be published in this way or by this person, by this publisher or whatever, or that it would even find an agent that we believe in, in our, the truth of, of our story and our vision and our voice. I mean, these things are our particular genius and everybody's every writer has a particular genius that is theirs. And I think you find it um, and you, and you write it 
and it's an amazing way to spend our lives. Um, I get, I mean, I've gotten discouraged. You ought to hear me talk to my daughter, who is my first reader. <laughs> she's my, she's great. I mean, she's read every novel that I've written chapter by chapter. After I get it where I think it should be, I'll hand it to her. And when I gave her the first chapter of The Secret Life of Bees, she said, Mom, this is really good. And I said, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I have this terrible, pessimistic voice in me that thinks none of it is that great. And with this book, even I'd say, you think this is going to work, you know? And she'd say, yeah, believe me, it's going to work. But I do that. And I'm not sure that's all bad. I mean, it's if that voice gets out of control, you've had it, you know, and you have to sit down and tell it to just leave your study, that you're not going to have it in here, that you really have to believe and love what you're doing. But there is a little part of me that believes that the voice that I described a moment ago that wonders is this really good? Is this really working? It's not all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's highly motivating as long as it stays in check and it's not the loudest voice in the room. Um, there, th- there is something about that, what is that Zen saying? Um, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Yes. And so that's what I'm talking about, just as writers, to always feel like a beginner. And I actually do always feel like a beginner when I'm writing. And I think that can be help, help us as well. But um, I just, you know, come in and sit down and stay in the chair and ride the waves of whatever's coming, whether it's um, discouragement or whatever. It all passes you have your core set of what you're about, and that's what you do. Yes. I think sometimes, I mean, because if we think about it objectively, there's nothing more kind of bonkers than to write a book because there are so few assurances at the beginning. It's it's sort of a crazy idea. It's a ridiculous financial proposition. You know, you have no idea. But so I try to think that it's just as valuable to do it for the transformation writing it has on the writer that we're not the same yeah. for having done it. And that's just as valuable as a, as putting it on the shelf somewhere. At least I think so. I couldn't agree more. I think that there is a need in the writer to write and that not to express that creativity is a bad thing for the human soul. You know, we, we can't um, ignore that in whatever form it wants to take. That's a, a very important um, almost like a, a real instinct in the human soul to express some creative need. And um, I think it can be almost harmful to us not to have that way to do, a way to do that, regardless. It's a matter of, of our own wholeness. Definitely. Well, you said before, maybe you could get into more what it was that impelled you so much about Anna's story. Can you say more about about what really pushed you into into writing this book from the beginning? Um, I'll try. Um, I think ultimately the the thing that drives us as writers 
is probably the character, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. you know, herself. Um, and I just was so compelled by Anna the day she showed up. I could picture her. I mean, it just I, it, it came to me one day as I was reading an article about a, man, uh, a fragment of a manuscript that referred to Jesus' wife. That was all it took, and there she was. Mm. And um, I could picture her. I mean, I closed my eyes, and I could see her. She had wild, untamed hair, and well, and I and her name came to me. I thought that's Anna, not Mary Magdalene. No, it was Anna. And I sat there thinking, why wouldn't Jesus have had a wife at some point in his earlier life, between those unknown years of what, the time he was twelve to the time he was uh, around thirty, and we have no record of him. Right. And Jewish Jewish men took wives uh, usually around 20 when they were 20. And I thought, well, why not? And so, you know, I was off with that. Um so mostly I I began with this um real compelling need about the character herself. Then I began to ask myself questions, and one of the first questions that came to me was, how would the world be different if Jesus had actually had a wife and she was part of the story? Right. I was really riveted by that question. I wrote it on a card and put it on my desk, and I I would think about how it would be different, and I'm convinced it would be quite different. I mean, you know, everything from celibacy to um, this kind of breach we have between sexuality and spirituality and how virginity is such a high virtue uh, in the Christian world. Um, all of these things would be quite different, but the main one that... I was concerned about was how different it would have been with the limitations that were imposed on women. That surely would have been different too. Maybe we would have more inclusion and women would not be quite, and their stories and voices not quite so marginalized. So all of these things gave me impetus. Um, I have spent a long time concerned with studying and writing about um, the feminism within religion, and um, mm-hmm. I wrote a memoir about this um, 20-something years ago. Let's see, 1996 is when it came out. Mm-hmm. The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which is still plugging along. And, yep. and amazingly, um, you know, we're still struggling with some of these same questions all these years later. And that was a concern for me, too. It's like, so I wanted to personalize this in a character and show um, how it impacted her life at really what is ground zero for all of this, the first century, and how it might have been and create an alternate history, so to speak, about that. It's really interesting also to see Obviously, you know, there's Judaism at this point in time. There's also other religions that that we don't see anymore, like in 
Egypt, we see, you know, priestess of Isis and a character who's in the temple there. And, and that there's a lot of, you know, religion that's being formed at this time still. And, and so I think that's true. I think that there was much more reverence for female deities at this time, and that got lost. And, and how would that have been different? I think that's a huge question. Yes, um, I have said that I feel like Anna could, in some ways, at least she does for me, represent the lost feminine within Western religion. And you're right. I think at the first at the first century, there were, I mean, there were so many different religions, and I made a point to portray one of them in Egypt, this worship of Isis, which was a very uh, pervasive kind of religion at the time. Um, you know, Anna was compelled to um, find a, a divine feminine image that she could relate to. And that has been a concern for me as well. I mean, I feel like religion will be the last bastion of patriarchy in the world. And that's why I chip away at it. It's, it's important because as long as we have a God-ordained misogyny, we're in trouble with, you know, how we can work that out. So it's a hard one. And that by God-ordained, I mean that's how it's interpreted, not how it really is. But we've created almost a holy misogyny. Yes. It was very interesting also to see Anna's relationship with Sophia, that even within Judaism, which, you know, I think of as you know, a, a one God kind of religion as, as many of the, the major ones are, it's, there was even a female deity to turn to for Anna in her own religion at the time. Yes, there, there is. It's a fascinating part of not just Judaism, Judaism, but early Christianity, um, that female or feminine aspect of the deity, of the Father God, so to speak, and this uh, spirit that is feminine. So that that got lost along with so many other things um, along the way. Yes. So what surprised you most in the process of writing this book? Was there anything other than the opening, which clearly sounds like that was that was quite a moment, but were there things that, that you, that happened? Like, did it surprise you that, that Anna was related to Judas? I was interested in that relationship because there are these sort of touch points between figures we all know and also characters we haven't heard before, you know, like Anna, who's fictional, and then her aunt and her family, um, what surprised you most in the process of writing this book? Mm-hmm. Well, I was constantly surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, E.M. Foster once wrote that, and I, I love this line. He said that writing a novel is really a, delivering a series of small astonishments. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, well, first, the the novelist needs to be astonished, you know, and then we can convey that um, because we don't want him to look too um, uh, contrived. Right. So I was surprised that Anna was um, had a, a, an adopted brother named Judas Iscariot. Yes, that surprised me. 
um, it just came to me. What well, you know, someone once once asked me. Um, I was in a some classroom and you know a little a guest writer kind of thing, and someone asked me what. How would you define a novel? I thought, holy moly. That's a big um, question. <laughs> yeah, right. How much time do we have and could I even do it? And here's what I said. You just take a bad situation and make it worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Now, there is truth in that. Um, until you can reconcile something at the end. And maybe it just ends bad, but usually not in my books anyway. Um and I, I would always do that. I have two little techniques I'll do as I'm thinking of some aspect of the narrative. One is I think the opposite. Mm. So just to jog my mind. Um, so you, you always tend to fall in, well, you, I mean, kind of me, tends to fall into, um, how should I put it? The, the familiar, the expected, as we develop the story. So I always try to pause every now and then and go, but what would the opposite be? Mm. And sometimes that absolutely blows the, the story into a new direction. Um, it was certainly true. I mean, the example is, it was true over and over in the Book of Belongings, but of course I can think of no example right off the bat. But I do remember suddenly one from The Secret Life of Bees in which I, my character, Lily, was going to the jail to see her, her nanny, housekeeper, who had been jailed wrongfully, and she was just going to visit her. And, and so there they are at this scene, and I'm thinking, this is so dull and so predictable, what would the opposite be? And what came to me was, well, she'd break her out of jail and they would just take off. And that's what I did. <laughs> yep. So in the Book of Longings, I thought about um, Judas mm-hmm. and his um, how he might be related to her because I wanted to portray him as a more complex human figure in the in the story. But the fact that they were... Related had not occurred to me until suddenly I thought, how could I take this and make it more complicated, more, more interesting, take it further, push the envelope? And I'm all for pushing envelopes in fiction. What I've noticed is when um, I read a manuscript by um, an author, uh, a writer, that sometimes they, they err on the side of being predictable or just um, what you would expect them to say. And I always want that small astonishment or maybe a large astonishment. You know, the unexpected moment needs to be, and you have to trust yourself to do that. I mean, because honestly, when I did write that, when, when that scene about breaking the housekeeper out of jail mm-hmm. and running away together came to me, it sounded outlandish in my head was like, wow, that would be crazy. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, a note, I wrote a note to myself that I still have <laughs> because I knew I wouldn't trust it later. And I said, Sue, this is a very good idea. Don't dismiss it later. Mm. I love it. I had to actually do that. And um, so 
I didn't dismiss it, mainly because I wanted to believe in the potency of that idea at the moment and return to it. It is this. It is funny, this question of what we're allowed mm-hmm. to do. Um, I, I have a friend who's a novelist, and she once wrote uh, that she said, okay, note to self, I'm writing a novel and I can do whatever I want. You know, we're, we're making up a whole world in, in it's mm-hmm. fiction. You know, that's the point. And yet we're constantly sort of doubting, are we really, can I really do that? Is, can I do that? It's, it's interesting yeah. that tension and, and how that plays out. Well, it is. Um, and doubt is just part of it. As we were saying earlier, it's just part of the process. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't write this story. It's just part of what goes on. Um, I, I, something that I return to a lot is, um, a line by uh, Leon Sermillion, who was a writing teacher, I believe at UCLA, no, USC, mm-hmm. USC. Um, and he wrote that um, writing is a confluence of measure and madness. And when I read that, I ordered his book, which I think is called Techniques of Fiction Writing, Measure and Madness, and I was struck by this this tension between these two and by madness, simply what he means is that I think it's a, it's a way of saying that we infuse our work with this almost unteachable kind of, uh, inner life that we have. It's, it's the, it's tapping into some vision we have inside. It's that world of, um, memory and dream and, um, feeling and, uh, you know, things you can't teach, really. It's right. just in each of us. And we have access to this realm in us that is very soulful. And I think of madness as the realm of the soul. And so it's a very heady, exotic place for us to go. But I think writers have to create portals there. This is the place of the imagination the place where we don't doubt, where we cut loose and can do anything we want, as, as your writer said. But it has to be balanced with measure, and that's the real key. Um, and that is the craft, and we can all learn it, and we can all um, write by the, the craft of it. And so one needs the other. And I feel like um, if, if a work doesn't have that so-called madness or what I would prefer to call soulfulness, it lacks that, uh, that spellbinding character, that, that thing that is almost unidentifiable that connects us with the reader. And if it doesn't have some measure, some structure, some, you know, um, writing techniques to balance that, um, then it's kind of chaos. So it need it really needs both, and one can be learned, and one can be is an art that can be um, also cultivated. Oh, that's so hopeful. I love that, and I think it's I think it's really true, and it's such a helpful way to think about the process at at all stages of the project. Yes, it was helpful to me. Yes. 
I want to thank you so, so much for taking this time to to talk to us about your process with the Book of Longings and, and writing in general. It's been really, really enlightening and really special. Well, thank you for letting me talk about it. It's not often you get to delve into what went on inside when you were writing a novel. And it's hard to put into words sometimes, but it was wonderful to be able to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.